Our Father, it's always good to be with men. Uh, the scriptures tell us as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Uh, it matters who our friends are. It matters who our um, acquaintances are. It matters who we listen to and who we consider to be our counselors. Uh, the scriptures also tell us that he who walks with wise men will be wise. We are not to um, be lone rangers as Christian men. That is a, um, it's, it's fiction. Uh, the self-sufficient man who doesn't need anyone, who's not in any relationship, that trusts no one, uh, that's, that's quite frankly a sad way to live. Uh, you have called us to be, Titus says, you, you've called us to be men of, uh, older men are to be uh, sober, we're to be steady, we're to have gravitas, we're to have some weight, in terms of our lives and what we believe. And we are to be in right relationship with you and with others. Um, we are to be men who know how to express love and relationship and encouragement. Um, even with the 12, Lord, when you sent them out and the, and the others, you didn't send them out one by one. You send them up two by two. We're, we're to be in relationship. We're to walk together. Uh, we have an enemy. First Peter tells us that uh, your adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You've called men to a very strategic role. You've called us to be leaders of our home and You've called us to um, lead in our families and the church. And we have more influence than we probably realize. So therefore, the enemy is interested in taking out the man who is serious about Christ. When we're not serious about Christ, the enemy would have no thought of us. But when we get serious about you and your word, and um, applying your truths to our lives. We're going to get opposition and we're going to get attack. And we are going to uh, do combat. But greater is he that is within us than he that is in the world. Thank you for these men. We're all facing battles. We're all facing issues. We're all facing temptations. We come to you. That's why we're here tonight, just to open our Bibles and to hear from you what you would have to say to us as to how we should live. And you tell us that we are not to be unwise, but wise. Because the days are evil. And that certainly describes where we are right now. So give us the wisdom we need as we look into your word. Help us to walk wisely and carefully, keeping our eyes on Jesus. Thank you that you forgive sin. Thank you that you never turn us away. 
Thank you that your grace is sufficient for whatever we have done. No matter how far away we have fallen from you, we can always return and you'll be there. You're a great Savior. And we acknowledge the fact that we need you tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you ever have the chance to go to England, there's so much to see. It's, uh, it, it's, it's fascinating to go up to Oxford. Oxford is, uh, I believe, the oldest university in the world. And uh, Oxford is comprised of different colleges. And they're all their own entities, but, but part of Oxford and the whole university. One of the colleges is called New College. New College was built in the 1300s. <laughs> There's a true story about New College. So in the 1800s, 500 years after it was built, and these different colleges, and you've seen these in some of the movies, they have these incredible dining halls that, you know, with ceilings 40, 50 feet high. Uh, they have their residences, these old, old, classic, I mean, they're hundreds of years old, and students still live in those rooms that men lived in four, five, six hundred years ago. The dining hall at New College, which was constructed in the 1300s, this was the late 1800s, they began to be concerned about the oak beams, the massive oak beams. So they sent an uh, entomologist up there with a penknife to check those beams, and sure enough, they had been infested with beetles. Um, he reported this to the college council, and they became concerned. How in the world do we replace those massive beams? Are there any oak trees still around that have the dimensions to handle beams being taken out of those trunks that can replace those things? So someone said, well, let's contact the college forester. And the college forester said, well, we thought we might be hearing from you. And they put the question to him, um, do you know of any oaks anywhere that would enable us to replace the beams as they have been for 500 years? And he said, that's not a problem. They said, it isn't. He said, no, it's not a problem because 500 years ago when those oak beams were hewn out of the oak trees. The same foresters who cut down those trees planted a grove of oaks because they knew in about four to 500 years those beams were gonna to need to be replaced. And yeah, we've got an entire grove of oaks that was specifically replanted for the purpose of replacing those beams. And the statement was made um, oak beams always become infested eventually 
with beetles. And every forester knew that and would pass it down to the next forester and would pass it down to the next forester. But they always become infested. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. Uh, I, I read this years and years ago. And when I was studying Second Peter this week, it, uh, I was reminded of this story. Because just as we, we live in a day where the mantra is, don't judge me. We live in a day where there is to be no judgment. I, I actually saw a van parked a couple of days ago. I was driving by, so I glanced, and I took it in pretty quickly. But it was a van that was headed, it, 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 it was advertising a, a fitness center, a gym. But it had a web address right under it, and the web address said, nojudgment.com. No judgment. Nobody wants to be judged. Second Peter is Peter's last will and testament. He's made it clear at the end of the first chapter that the Lord has made it clear to him that he is not going to live much longer. He's got weeks, maybe months. There's a great persecution going on under Nero, and uh, he's going to lose his life. He's going to be crucified in this persecution, which indeed happened. So he is writing this second letter to remind them, these believers who are under intense persecution, of some very, very important truths. He does not want them to forget. They cannot afford to forget. And basically what he's going to do is he's going to remind them of false teachers. And the problem with false teachers is that false teachers say things that aren't true. And when you're in persecution and your life is being ripped apart, <laughs> you, what you need is truth. In order to get through, you need the truth of God. Not false teaching from false teachers. That, that will not help you. There's nothing to it. There's no substance to it. There's no nourishment. There's no foundation to it. You need the truth of the living God. So that's what Second Peter really is, is all about. So as we dive into this, I'll give you an outline, and we'll come back, and we'll work our way through it. It's one, two, three-point outline. And underneath has got subpoints, but I'll come back and get the subpoints as we work our way through this. Uh, the first point is the two the twofold charge of the false teachers. The twofold charge of the false teachers. They're making an accusation against Peter and the other apostles. We'll come back to that. Secondly, Peter's threefold answer to the false charges. Peter's threefold answer to the false charges. Thirdly, the rescue of Noah and Lot. The rescue of Noah and Lot. Now, this Second Peter chapter 2 is a lot to chew on. It is, uh, it's, it doesn't go down easy. It's kind of gnarly. It's rough. It's uh, abrasive. Uh, it is extremely confrontational. It is, it's not nice. 
It's not nice. The key word in a lot of Christian churches, evangelical Christian churches in America is nice. Just be nice. Just be nice. Just be kind. Peter's not doing that here. Because this is war. These false teachers are emissaries of Satan and they destroy people's lives and he has blown the whistle on them and he has taken them on. So it's a rough chapter. It's not the kind of chapter you want to read as you, just before you go to bed at night because it will disturb you. It will, uh, if you really get into it, it'll upset you. Because it reminds, reading that chapter, reminds us of where we are right now and what we're dealing with. We're living in extremely troubled times, very difficult times, characterized by uh, sexual anarchy, by, uh, by unbelievable lying and deception and fraud at the highest levels. I got an amen out of that one. It's, it's remarkable. Uh, we're living in days of lawlessness. And Jesus said in the last days, lawlessness would increase. Well, we watch, we're watching that every week. It kind of, it just, it just, uh, these guys are unbelievable. It's just one lie, deception after another, on all fronts, on all fronts. So if you weren't depressed before you walked in here, Allow me to help you tonight. But you see, this is kind of the normal Christian life. It's certainly the way that it has been when you look at uh, the history of the world. And we're going to see that tonight. The, let, let's go back to the first point. The twofold charge of the false teachers. We actually covered this a few weeks ago. But... We need to rehearse it one more time because it'll bring us into focus and help us understand this particular passage that we're looking at tonight. The twofold charge of the false teachers is really found in uh, 2 Peter 1, verse 16. Although tonight we're going to be in 2 Peter 2, verses 3 down through 9. Um, in 116 of Second Peter, Peter says, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So these false teachers, why would he say that? We didn't make this stuff up. Christ is coming back. Christ is going to return. Well, why did he have to say that? Because the false teachers had attacked him and the other apostles by saying what the apostles have said about the return of Christ, he's not coming back. He's not coming. So don't worry about it. And here's the, here's the, that's the first charge. Christ is not coming back. And then here's the second. If he's not coming back, then you will not face judgment. wow, there's not going to be any judgment? No, you're good. You can live any way you want to. You can do anything you want. There's no final judgment. Huh. Well, that sounds good. That's music to the ears of our culture. 
Don't judge me. No judgment. I can do anything I want. There are books being written saying you can be, uh, you, you can live a homosexual lifestyle or a heterosexual lifestyle of sexual immorality, and you can be a Christian, and God is okay with you, and there is mercy and grace and forgiveness, and there will be no final judgment. In fact, everyone is going to be saved. Everyone. There's no judgment. Revelation 20. I mean, this is outside the church, and this is inside the church. Revelation 20, verse 11. The Apostle John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So everybody dies once, and then there's a second death, the lake of fire. Eternal damnation in hell. Well, you don't believe in hell. I'm just reading the book. Jesus talked about hell twice as many times as he did about heaven. Verse 15, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So you've got two groups of people. You've got the righteous and you've got the unrighteous. The difference between the righteous and the unrighteous is is Christ. Because we're all unrighteous. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. But then you work your way through Romans, Romans 6.23, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, Romans uh, 10. If you confess Jesus as Lord Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So Christ is the difference maker. Christ is the one who saves us from our sin, who died in our place. This is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that we're all sinners, but Christ came and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works that any man should boast. Uh, Religion, quote unquote religion, is doing as many good works as you possibly can do. Um, Doing penance. Um, You go to Mexico, you'll see people walking on their bare knees up the steps of cathedrals. Uh, trying to atone for their sins. But we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. We're saved by the blood of Christ. That's the good news. And that's the only way to be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's very exclusive, and that is not popular right now. 
Because there are many ways. No, Jesus said there's one way and it's me, period. That's it. Now, this doesn't go over real well right now. You believe this and they're going to they're gonna tweet about you. They're going to come after you. The, the social media mobs will come after you. Um, and see, it really goes back to what the false teacher said. The false teacher says, he's not coming. And you can add to that in our day, he doesn't exist. He's not coming. And there is no final judgment. But you see, there is. So that's the twofold charge of the false teachers. Secondly, you have Peter's threefold answer to the false charges, which are in 2 Peter 2. And we worked through the first, what, three verses last week. This evening we'll pick up about verse. We'll get the tail end of three, and then we'll go down through nine. Talking about false teachers. He says their greed, uh, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Watch this. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So again, these false teachers are saying, Christ hasn't returned, and there's going to be no judgment. I mean, you guys, I mean, you know, you're talking about the imminent return of Christ. Yeah, but Peter in another spot says, but you see... The day is like a thousand years under the Lord. So God works on a little different time schedule than we do. You know. Uh, but nevertheless, he's saying, listen, this judgment has not been delayed. This, this judgment has not been uh, laid to the side. Uh, this, this judgment is not asleep. It's active. It's active and it's coming. And then what he's going to do is this is a very interesting section of scripture. He's going to make a case. And he's going to offer some historical proof. He, he's going to offer three historical facts about the judgment of God that has already occurred. And then to that, he's going to add the gospel, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, that rescued two men, and then he's going to sum it all up in verse 9. Uh, just to make it difficult, let's read verse 9, and then we'll go back. But I want you to see a summary. Everything up until verse 9, he's making a case. And here's the summary. Verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So there's your two groups again, the righteous and the unrighteous. Now back up to four. Beginning with four, he's gonna give a threefold answer to the false charges. Let's, let's just read through it and then come back to it. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, that's the first judgment, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. This is the second judgment, the flood. 
but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the, the world of the ungodly. And, verse 6, here's the third judgment. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued Lot, and in verse 5, he had rescued Noah, Lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then, because of all that, because of those three historical facts that God's already judged, and by the fact that God rescued two men from an oppressive and evil and wicked culture, then my summary is verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. That's what Peter wants us to know as he's getting ready to face death. Don't forget this, don't lose this. And he knew he was writing scripture. And until the Lord returns, there will be false teachers who will spread this message. And they'll be outside the church, as we saw last week, and they'll be inside the church. Let's break down these uh, three historical facts about past judgment. Um, turn with me, if you would, to Genesis 6. Well, you're not really going to turn to Genesis, are you? You don't really believe Genesis. Yeah. See, that's part of the spiritual battle. That's part of the attack. You can't trust the word of God. And for sure, you can't trust Genesis. Well, if the very first book of the Bible is wrong, how would you trust anything else in the Bible? I mean, that makes no sense. But it's inspired by God. Now, so Genesis 6, verse 1. Now, it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters are born to them. And I'm going to give you a heads up here. This is one wild passage. I mean, it's wild. It, uh, <laughs> some of you are familiar with it, some of you aren't. But you, you, if you're familiar with it, or if you're not familiar, you're going to go, really? I mean, seriously? All right. Now, it came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God, now you're going to have to trust me on this. The term sons of God refers to angels, to fallen angels. And I'm not going to take the time. If you want to, you can go to the website of S. Lewis Johnson. And he's got a great message on fallen angels in 2 Peter 2, our passage. And uh, he never gets beyond the first judgment. So then the next week, he's got to take up the rest of the passage that we're dealing with tonight. But I mean, he makes a case. And he even makes the case that when he was in seminary, he didn't want to believe what this says. And even his professor, Dr. Harrison, really didn't want to believe what it said but the text is so clear, this is what it means. Uh, 
that the sons of God, the angels, evil angels, saw the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. And when the sons of God, the evil angels, came into the daughters of men, they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men of old, men of renown. So what you had was fallen angels who uh, copulated with human women. Now, uh, this raises all kinds of questions. And some say they possessed men. Men can become demon-possessed, or they did this physically themselves. But then a race of giants was born, the Nephilim. And uh, really, go over to Jude. Hey, Jude. It's past Second Peter, towards Revelation. You get to Revelation, go left. You get in the first, second, third John, then you get Jude. Uh, Jude, just one chapter, verse 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Huh. Uh, go back to Second Peter. Let's take another look at what he's saying about these angels. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment. Okay. So, you can go take a theology course at Dallas Seminary called Angelology. And it's the doctrine of angels, Everything the Bible has to say about angels. Fascinating course, but about 12, 13 weeks long. You'll do a lot of reading. You'll look in the scripture, you know, passages you didn't even know were there. Fascinating stuff. So, Satan was the highest of the created angels. You can look at Isaiah 14. You can look at Ezekiel 28. So, he was the highest of the angels. But, that wasn't good enough for him. He wanted to become like God. He wanted to become equal with God. He wanted to become superior to God. And because of his rebellion, he took a third of the angels with him. You can look this up in Revelation chapter 12. He took a third of the angels with him, and they rebelled against God. And so now we got spiritual warfare. This is Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Uh, our, 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 for we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, the powers of the air. So there is an unseen world... Was it uh, Elisha, when Elisha in the Old Testament would, the, the, uh, was it the king of Aram, I think, would make plans to attack the army of God, and Elisha would then alert the army and the king and say, they're going to try to ambush you here, and so when that evil king showed up, he'd get ambushed. And he said to his men, all right, which one of you is a traitor? It's not us, it's the man of God who reads your thoughts in your bedchamber. Well, let's go get him. Where is he? He's in Dothan. Let's go get him. So the next morning, um, 
uh, Elisha's um, servant goes out to get the uh, uh, Jerusalem Post or whatever, I mean, he was doing, and a bottle of milk or something, goat's milk, and, and he's grabbing the paper and getting the milk, and he looks around, and in these mountains, there's the army of the wicked king. And he runs in and gets Elisha, and he says, Master, Master, and Elisha comes out and looks around, and he says, Don't worry. Don't worry. There are more of us than there are of them. And the guy goes. <laughs> and then Elisha prayed, Lord, open his eyes that he might see. And he saw. The hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of angels protecting them. And so struck them blind, took them right in, and they were captured. We tend not to be aware that this other world exists, but it exists. Satan uh, is still the god of this world, but he's under God. Martin Luther said, the devil is God's devil. He's on a chain. God cannot attack a believer without permission from the Father. He could not afflict Job without first getting permission from God Almighty. And God said, this, but no further. God put boundaries on him. There's still boundaries on him. But Satan has demons that are his minions, that are his army, that are with him. And in a sense, they are free. They're free to do his bidding. All right? These angels that we're looking at are not free. They're already in hell, and they're bound in chains. And they will never be released, and they are under judgment in hell, and they have further judgment coming. Matthew Harmon, in his commentary, um, writes these words. He says, Peter states that God did not spare angels when they sinned. Rather than spare them, God cast them into hell and committed them the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. According to Genesis 6, 1 through 4, the nature of the angel's sin was marrying human women they found attractive and producing offspring with them. Um, for time, I'm going to just leave it there. This is what's taught. And uh, these angels went outside their proper abode and it seems that they thought that this would somehow completely derail God's plan of redemption for the world. But it didn't. In fact, Christ, after he died on the cross, he went into hell and proclaimed. He, he didn't go in to give an altar call, he declared what he had done. Now, let's quickly move on. There's a second judgment. So that's in a judgment that took place way back. There's a second judgment for those who think God will never judge. Right? Well, there's a second judgment. And that too is in Genesis 
6. Verse 5. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is quite a diagnosis. That was the condition of every responsible man and woman on the face of the earth. It was utterly corrupt and depraved and wicked. But, look at verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Why? Because he was a man that was seeking the Lord. These are the records, verse 9, of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. So there's the two groups. You've got the, uh, you got the righteous and you've got the unrighteous. Uh, Noah was a sinner, just like I'm a sinner. In fact, after the flood and after he's rescued and all that, he gets blind, stinking, drunk. Because he's a flawed individual, just like we're flawed. But he still loved the Lord, and he sought the Lord. And the blood of Christ and the righteousness of Christ had been transferred into his account. It's not that we're without sin. We are sinners. But the righteousness of Christ, according to Romans, has been reckoned to us, transferred into our account. One of the best emails I ever get are the ones that say, you have received money. I don't get them often. But when I do, I'm very pleased because someone, somehow, whatever, the title company, something, I don't know, has transferred money out of their account into mine. And it is reckoned to me as it belongs to me. Same concept. So you go back. You guys still with me? Okay. And you don't really believe this Noah stuff. You don't really believe this worldwide flood stuff. Oh, yeah. So... Henry Morse has written a book called The Genesis Flood. You ought to read it. It's fascinating. Or take a spin up to Kentucky and see the Noah's Ark replica that Ken Ham has built just south of Cincinnati. And when that was completed two years ago, people were mocking it and saying, nobody's coming. You guys are crazy. This summer they passed two million visitors. The biggest problem, it's so popular, the biggest problem is you can't get a hotel room because it's south of Cincinnati. So now they're having to build hotel rooms and it's a... Noah's Ark is uh, pumping the economy in Kentucky. And there are people that are very, very upset by it. But you can walk through it. And how could they put all those animals in? Da-da-da. Hey, you know... People have done research on this stuff and have devoted their whole lives to this. Uh, you will meet Noah in heaven. And he really existed. This stuff really happened. He was a righteous man who was outnumbered in his culture by wickedness. 
yet he stood for the truth. He, uh, he preached for 120 years. He basically preached that they should turn to the living God. He basically preached the gospel to them. And they wouldn't listen. He had, basically, he had no converts. All, eight people came out of that worldwide flood. Eight. Eight. Del Tackett has done a video with Focus on the Family and talking about just, you know, some of these events in the past and the flood. And uh, the first opening shot is outside. It looks like it's close to the Grand Canyon because you can see these, the, the topography of the land. It drops and it into a, there's a ridge and it drops down deep and then comes up the other side. And you can see these geological formations and he keeps talking for about 10 minutes, and he's making some points. And he said, by the way, where I'm standing here, um, it looks similar to the Grand Canyon. Where I'm standing here looked completely different 40 years ago. Right behind me is Mount St. Helens. And all of this that looks like geological you know, transition over the ages and hundreds of thousands of years and all that, it's 40 years old from Mount St. Helens. It was covered with trees 40 years ago, but it was utterly destroyed and pop, 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 pop. It's just wild stuff. I don't know, just saying. Fascinating. Uh, God's not going to judge. No, I don't have to be a fair. No judgment. No judgment.com. Second Peter 2 is there is a judgment.com. And it's coming. He did it once. With the evil angels, he did it twice with the worldwide flood, and only Noah and his family survived, and then he did it a third time. That's also in Genesis. It's Genesis 18 and 19. And in Genesis 18 and 19, you've got Sodom and Gomorrah. And Sodom and Gomorrah, these cities were incredibly prosperous. Their, their economic viability, the luxury, they lived in splendor, they were, and they were absolute pursuers of sexual anarchy. Utter perversion. And what does Second Peter say about that? He describes it this way. Verse 6, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. Uh, catch what he's saying. I judged Sodom and Gomorrah so that those who decide to live that way in the coming generations would understand that because of my holiness, I take this seriously. And they too will be judged. Do you know that Sodom and Gomorrah have never been found, but we know that they existed? There's no evidence. They were completely obliterated. They're probably underneath, the ashes are probably underneath the Dead Sea down in southern Israel. But I mean, it, it, was, it was like Nagasaki and Hiroshima. It was utterly destroyed. So those are three judgments. To those who say there will be no judgment, 
You don't need to worry about it. Just live however you want to live. Yeah, you're fine. You're good. You're not fine and you're not good. And as the beetles are one day going to come and infestate the oak beams, so judgment is going to come and you cannot avoid it. This is serious stuff. See, this is why we preach the gospel. This is, and what does the gospel mean? The gospel is the good news of Jesus. It's good news. Someone once asked Francis Schaeffer if he had an hour on a plane to talk with an unbeliever about the gospel, how would he do that? And he said, I think we're too quick to tell people the good news. He said, I would spend probably 45 to 50 minutes telling them the bad news. That they are utterly condemned. Forget God's moral code. You're condemned by your own moral code. Is that not true? Forget the Ten Commandments. What are your commandments? Well, I don't want to be judged. Okay. Well, then what happens when someone wrongs you? Man, I mean, I'm going after them. I'm going to sue them. I'm going to get, I'm going to, you know. Why? Why? You want them to be judged. Do you think it's wrong to lie? Sure you do. Do you lie? Yeah. Your, mor- your own moral code condemns you. You can't even live up to what you think is right. So, Forget God for the moment. We condemn ourselves. And we all know it if we're honest. So we need good news. The good news, which is layered into this passage in 2 Peter, is the good news of two men who received the grace of God and the mercy of God. We've already looked at them, uh, and this would be the, the, the third point. This would be the rescue of Noah and Lot. God is all about rescuing. He really is. The good news is that Jesus wants to rescue us from our sins. Um. I'll give you a great verse. So Psalm 50 verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. When we believe the gospel and when we say Lord Jesus come into my life. I believe that you're God. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I ask you to accept me. I ask you to come into my life. I believe that you died in my place. Come into my life. I want you to be my God. I want you to be my Savior. I want you to be my shepherd. I want you to show me how to live. When you get in with him, that's, that's the big rescue. You are saved from sin. You are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. But that will not be your only rescue. I mentioned this before. I've mentioned it many times. But back to Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. The way that's constructed, it's a participle, and you could translate it like this. 
for by grace you have been saved with continuing results. Yes, he saves us from our sin, but now that we're in his family, now that we're in his kingdom, he just keeps saving us. Because sin still dwells within us and we still get ourselves in trouble and we still make dumb moves and stupid choices and we keep our secrets and we hide stuff and we've got our agenda and yeah, we want to follow Jesus, but we're still kind of, we're getting weaned off of ourselves and this takes a lifetime. And when you get yourself in a pit and you get yourself all hemmed in and there's no escape and it's your own fault, call on me in the day of trouble. I will rescue you and you will what? You'll honor me. You'll honor me. <laughs> He's a savior and he keeps on saving. That's the good news. He rescued Noah and his family. He rescued Lot. Um, look at verse nine of Second Peter. Remember I said that's kind of the summary of the argument that's being made in that passage? Yeah, it sure is. Verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Now back up to verse 7. It says, and if he rescued righteous Lot... Oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. Now, we could talk about Noah in verse 5. Let's talk about Noah for a minute. Noah preached for 120 years. He had no converts. It was just his family. His wife, his kids, his three boys, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and, and their wives. They're the ones that came out of the ark. Um, and then, as I said, not too long after that, I mean, one of the first things recorded is that Noah got blind, stinking drunk. Because we're sinners. We're always in need of Christ. We're always in need of a Savior. So he wasn't a perfect guy. Lot was even worse. Uh, if you know anything about Lot, if you really read the scriptural descriptions about him, it, it, it's kind of shocking the guy's saved. He's actually called a righteous man. Because when Abraham said to him, you choose what land you want, well, he chose the best land. He chose, well, he saw Sodom and Gomorrah in the cities and the prosperity. He goes, I'll take that. And Abraham said, fine, I'll take that stuff up there, which is modern-day Israel. Um, the problem was there was great wickedness in those cities. And the Bible says, bad company corrupts good morals. It just does. Uh, yet, there was a part of Lot. He, at times, he made bad decisions. He, he just was immature. He was foolish. But he is described this way. And if he rescued Lot, in verse 7, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, he was oppressed. He felt the weight of it. He got discouraged. He got down. He'd watch the news every night and just wear him out. Didn't say that, but you can relate to that. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, when living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. You ever feel tormented? And as a result, you ever, you ever get tormented about the future? And shoot, you'll be, you know, you won't be around forever, but your kids and grandkids will. 
You ever worry about them? You ever get tormented about their futures? Because you see where everything's going? Sure you do. But the Lord saved Lot, and what he's saying to us is, then the Lord, he's got, he's got two points here in verse 9. The Lord knows how to save, he knows how to rescue the godly from temptation, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Okay. So God is going to judge, Jesus is going to come back. That's Revelation 20. Um, he's judged three times in the past. And you know, it's interesting, when you look at history, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, I, I read this in his commentary in Second Peter this week. He, he said, nations uh, rise and they fall. And God oversees the nations and God oversees history and God, oversees, God has a plan for the ages. And nations fall into great sin. And, there are, uh, and, and so what happens when nations fall into, two, into great sin, one of two things is going to happen. They either, um, uh, they either are judged or God sends revival. If you look at England in the 1700s, England was in horrific shape, horrific shape. Uh, London was a stench of a city. The, the, uh, the sin, the debauchery, the orphans, the immorality, the uh, Belfast, uh, was uh, they were they were blind drunk on gin, which is why Guinness started his brewery and filled that. It yeah, it had alcohol, but the water was so bad it needed alcohol, and he and he put vitamin B twelve and six in that stuff, and their motto was it's good for you, and it was. Uh, what happened? These nations that knew the gospel had departed and I mean, they're on their way down. They were flat out on their way down towards anarchy. And then God raised up men like Guinness. God raised up men like Wilberforce. God raised up men like the Wesley brothers. God raised up preachers like Whitfield and revival hit and the nation turned. That didn't happen in France. So in France, there's judgment. And you have a revolution, a bloody revolution, and beheadings in the street like they're eating M&Ms. But God controls the nations. God controls the world. There is a plan for history. It's all under his sovereignty. So we've looked at this, and when I look at this, and, and the other thing I need to say, when you look at all three of these judgments, there was great... Um, sexual perversion in all three of these instances with the, with the evil angels with uh, the flood the way they lived prior to the flood the, the thoughts and intentions of the heart it was despicable how people were living um, there was no self control there was, it was all just complete indulgence and when people live like that people get hurt and children get hurt in, in the Old Testament, when God said, utterly destroy the Canaanites, oh, that's terrible. Those Canaanites, they were so rampant, those Canaanites, with venereal disease, you had children being born blind. God had to come in and clean it out. And by the way, the children that were taken, and if they were killed, they're in the presence of Christ. 
How did I get into that? I'm sorry, I did. But they cannot tell their right hand from their left hand. And there is a pretty good case that can be made that children that die in infancy go to be with the Lord. Children that are aborted go to be with the Lord. Children that are miscarried go to be with the Lord. When David's son, who was the result of sexual sin, was born and then died, David wouldn't eat. But when the child died, he got up and ate. And they said, why are you eating now? He said, because one day I shall be with him. That little child went into the presence of God. Those, those, those infants, up to a certain age, children don't, they, they are not, they don't understand. They don't have the capacity. God's a merciful God. God is a good father. When I see the, the, the sexual anarchy and the utter rebellion towards God that brought about these three judgments, I can't help as I look at this, I see where we are. And as Billy Graham once put it, and he said this 50 years ago, if God doesn't judge America, he's gonna have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And that was 50 years ago. In 1959, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we're living in days of exceptional evil. 59. Ozzie and Harriet were just getting rolling in 59. And he said, these are days of exceptional evil, 59. No, to him they were, because you should have seen it in 1859. But you see, you have the rise and the fall, and we're in free fall. So sure, you're going to think about the future. And like Lot, you're going to be tormented about the future. Your kids, your grandkids, what kind of world are they going to deal with? What kind of religious liberty do you think we're going to have in 20 years? Well, personally, I'm not real hopeful. And, and just, just the facts, as Joe Friday, the great theologian, used to say. <laughs> and if you're young, Google Joe Friday. He was, <laughs> he was the cop on Dragnet. But Joe Friday, in his empathetic way, a woman who had just lost everything, he would just look at her with an icy glaze and say, just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. Don't give me that emotion. Don't cry. I don't care. Just the facts. Tough guy. What, uh, just look at the facts. I mean, you just look, because what happens when, when a nation gets into lawlessness? Five, six years ago, was it now? Seven years ago? They were trying to get, they wanted gay marriage approved by the Supreme Court. And, and I, this, uh, this is off the top of my head, so I don't have the dates exactly right. But within 30 days of getting that done, there was a tsunami of transgenderism. I mean, I mean, it just came out of nowhere. And, and so now you've got it in, in schools and in kindergartens, and you've got it in, it's, it's just, it's, there's no stopping it. And so then you take the religious liberty issue. And there are some real key cases coming up before the courts right now. But do you really think that we're going to have the same liberties right now? We'll have those in 20 years? 
I'll tell you one reason I don't think so, and it was John Dickinson in his book, Hope for the Ages, isn't that what his book is called? Hope for the Nations, who points this out, that listen, all you need is just more time to go by, and those who believe in the Constitution and were raised a certain way and went to war and fought and died and uh, believed in the Constitution, all that, we're dying off. And the millennials are coming up. And for some reason, well, here's the reason. They weren't educated, they were indoctrinated. And for some reason, they think socialism is like going to Disneyland. But you see, when you get to Disneyland, you're gonna find Stalin, and you're gonna find Hitler, and you're gonna find Pol Pot, and you're gonna find a bunch of mass murderers and mass destruction. But see, they can't see it. And you try to tell them, but they're smarter than any other generation that's ever existed in the history of the world. Not all of them, but a lot of them. So they don't listen to anybody. Historically, the younger listened to the older because they knew they had wisdom. Uh -uh. No more. Now, I'm making a general statement, but generally it's true. So I want you guys to go home and go to sleep and rest well tonight. <laughs> so my question is this, as we wrap this up. How can you go home and go to sleep and rest well tonight when our days parallel these days? How can you do it? Here's how. I think the only way you can do it is, and this is where I get feedback often, and the feedback goes something like this. Why do you spend so much time talking about the sovereignty of God? And a real quick answer would be, because I can't sleep without it. I can't have any peace without it. I can't have any joy without it. I just can't. And if you do, you're not thinking. You're escaping. You're escaping into Jack Daniels, or you're escaping into uh, you know, vacations, or you're escaping into this, but you're not thinking. But you really think about this stuff, you're going to be tormented. The only thing that brings stability and peace and a quiet heart is the sovereignty of God. And I'm telling you, it does the job. So three things about the sovereignty of God. As we look at these accounts and these past destructions and where we are today and what our future would look like. Now, I thank God for his sovereignty. Number one, I thank God, sovereignty is absolute control. He's in, he's in absolute control. In Daniel 2, Daniel praises God because God has us all power and all wisdom. How much power does God have? God has all power. That's why in 2 Peter 2, in verse 9, when it says, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation, because he has all power. He's got the power to do it. Doesn't matter what you're up against, doesn't matter what the influences are, doesn't matter who the teachers are, doesn't matter this, doesn't matter that. He knows how because he's got the power. He can pull it off. It's a slight thing. It's easy. 
Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is the arm of the Lord too short that it cannot save? No, he's God. It's the power of God. He is God almighty. So because he's almighty, I read Isaiah 40, he rules the nations. Oh my gosh, what's happening in Iran? What's happening in, oh, they're gonna pull out in Syria and then you got Turkey and then you got the guy in North Korea and all my, all my, <laughs> chill out, man. Eat a cheeseburger, eat some bluebell. Put it right in your veins. You'll feel better. Enjoy life. Yeah, but just, hey, 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 hold on. This is why Martin Lloyd-Jones says faith is a refusal to panic. Faith is a refusal. Why? Because God's sovereign. And because Isaiah 40 says God oversees the nations and he rules them. And God looks at the great nations and to him they're meaningless and void. They're less than nothing. That's it. Oh, the great rulers, the great leaders, they're meaningless and they're void. He raises them up, he puts them down. He controls them. They have a will, they're responsible for their choices, but he inclines their heart, he turns their heart. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he wishes. Why did Hitler, when he had England on their knees after the bombing of London, and he could have walked in, crossed that English Channel, and just gone straight into London, and put the king in jail and just take over Buckingham Palace. Why didn't he do it? Why did he suddenly think, hmm, why don't we go to Russia in the dead of winter? <laughs> the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the he turns it whatever way he wishes. Hey, Adolf, go to Russia. <laughs> yes, sir. Because you see, Adolf is under authority. We think he's the authority. He's the most powerful man on the earth. No, he's not. He's a little wuss that God runs and God owns and God controls. He can't breathe without Jesus. And neither can you and neither can I. That's power. And because God is sovereign, here's the second thing. Because God is sovereign, God is just. He's just. You ever get upset because you see lawlessness and you see injustice? I mean, have you seen bad things happen? Have you seen horrible things happen? Have you seen evil and wickedness that goes unpunished and it seems like these people get off? Read Psalm 73. This guy's losing his faith because every time he looks around, the righteous are suffering and the wicked are prospering. And he's about to lose his faith. That's Psalm 73. I mean, he is deeply, deeply disturbed. And, and I got to say, you look around, and that sounds very familiar to me. Lying through their teeth, working backroom deals, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And they get away with it. They get away with it. 
And people who had nothing to do with it lose everything or in solitary confinement somewhere and utterly destroyed. And how can you, that's wrong. That's just wrong. Or people in the South, people who were slaves, you talk to black people today, they can tell you stories about folks in their families who were lynched. They had nothing to do with it. They were just there. They were lynched. Would that upset you? Sure it would. It's wrong. It's evil. That'll put you in a Psalm 73 dilemma. And what the guy in Psalm 73 says, he basically lost in faith until he went into the sanctuary and he saw their end. And what is the end? Judgment. There has to be judgment for things to be made right. And Romans 9 says there is no injustice with God. God judges perfectly. Perfectly. And that's right. Because he's a holy God and he has the power and the justice and the character of holiness to do it. So you know what that enables me to do? It enables me to rest and it enables me to sleep. Because God's going to make everything right. And all judgment has been given over to the Son and Jesus is going to make it right. Yes, he will. And then the other reason I can sleep in regard to the sovereignty of God is the love of God. The absolute love of God. Uh, Christians are not exempt from suffering or from hardship or from injustice. Uh, these Christians in Second Peter uh, were being persecuted. Some of them were being used uh, as human torches. They were being burned alive. They were being beheaded. They were being disemboweled. They were being drawn and quartered. They Horrible, horrible things. God never tells us we're going to have an easy life. Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And I'm going to tell you something. We better get ready. Because it's not going to get better. We got a little bit of a reprieve. But it's going to get worse. Jesus made that very clear. Well, I don't want to hear that. You need to hear it. You need to hear it. And you need to know Romans chapter 8 about the love of God. So let's finish with Romans 8. God never tells us he's going to give us an easy life, but he tells us he's going to give us an incredible outcome and that he will be with us every step of the way. Romans 8.28 and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. You know what that is? That's sovereignty. That's absolute power. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. That means murder, rape, divorce, bankruptcy, lying, cheating, perjury, whatever you can come up with. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. He doesn't say those things are good. He says he's going to cause whatever evil is done, whatever wickedness, whatever whatever is done, he's going to cause it to <coughs> work. 
together for good to those who love God and called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined. He said, oh yeah, I know what that means. God looked ahead in the future to see who was going to choose him. No, that's not what it means. The idea of foreknew here, in the King James you'll read, and Abraham knew Sarah. Isaac knew Rebekah. It's a term of intimate love. The idea here is, and we know that whom he foreloved. See, we love him because he, he what? Oh, he first loved us. He didn't look ahead to see we're gonna love him. That's, oh, we first loved him. No, 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 Jesus said, we love him because he first loved us. John said. He didn't look in the future to see who was gonna choose him, he chose us. That's why we know him, that's why we love him. For whom he foreloved, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Well, I don't like predestination. Well, you don't know what you're talking about. It's the greatest thing that ever happened to you. You know what predestination means? It means God has a plan for your life. That's a heck of a lot better than any plan you ever had. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 16, 9. Is it Proverbs 16, 20? There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is destruction. <laughs> so God interrupts our plans. He's got a plan. He says, get on this train. You're going with me. Thirty. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. That's how we're forgiven of our sins. That's Jesus transferring his righteousness into my account. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's heaven. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how he will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, which is, at the Father, uh, which is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Watch this. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution? I don't think I can go through that stuff. Well, you couldn't right now. But as that day, so shall they strength be. Whatever it is you need to go through something, he'll give it to you. It shall be given to you in that hour what you shall speak. You don't have it now because you don't need it now. But when you need it, you'll have it. <laughs> That's the love of God. You've been through things you never thought you'd get through, and he got you through. That's the love of God. How can he do that? Because he's sovereign. Because he has all power. And you go right down on through the list. What can separate me from the love of God? Verse 36, just as it's written, for your sake we're being put to death all day long. We were considered a sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, depth, or any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And at the end, for those whose names are written in the book of life, They'll be with him forever. And there'll be a new heaven. There'll be a new earth. There'll be a new Jerusalem. And all of this is over. 
and we're going to live forever, and it's going to be unbelievable. And if you're in Christ, by his grace and mercy, I'll see you there. <laughs> Dad Gummit, that's great. Let's pray. So, Father, we can sleep tonight because of the truth. We don't have to fear. You've not given us a spirit of fear, but that of power and love and sound thinking. Yeah, we're living in rough days, but you're faithful and you're right there with us. We pray for our children. We pray for our grandchildren that you'll bring them in one by one and that they'll know you and that you won't let them get away and that you'll redeem them. Even if they're away and fighting you and not interested in you right now, just pull them in. Just pull them in. Pull them in against their will because their wills are dead. You pulled us in against our will. We ask you to be just as merciful to them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.